welcome, welcome. You hear the tubas. That means it's time for Yukon 360, uh, the world's greatest podcast that covers all aspects of life at the University of Connecticut, from soup to nuts, as it were. This is our seventh episode, Woo! our first uh, post-graduation episode. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to Nancy Stula and the folks at the Benton Art Museum, where we are recording from. Uh, my name is uh, Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. And joining me, as always, Julie Bartuka. What's up? Ken Best. Present and accounted for. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us this week. And as always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, uh, found a strange new religion, and make <laughs> listening to our podcast a core tenet. Something. Get the word out. That's what I believe in. Uh, we, <laughs> we have a great show uh, for you this week. And uh, why don't we jump right into it with some Husky headlines. Let's find out what's happening around the University of Connecticut. Julie? UConn's work to restore the long-shuttered Hartford Times building for the new downtown Hartford campus has earned us some honors from the Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation. The organization presented an award of merit this month to the university and the contractors who worked on the facade of the building, which has housed the UConn Hartford campus since summer 2017. In the award announcement, the trust said, the restoration demonstrates that preserving civic buildings can help revitalize Connecticut cities while promoting interest in their history and culture. The structure and its bizarre facade, I can't believe I just pronounced that word, were built in 1920 to house the Hartford Times newspaper and became a downtown landmark whose visitors over the decades included four U.S. presidents who spoke from its terrace. The building was used for a time by the city after the newspaper closed in 1976, but had been vacant and fallen on disrepair before the university decided to move their Harvard campus there. Um, if you haven't been there, the restoration is very stunning. The university and the architects from Robert A.M. Stern Architects were so committed to authenticity that they even replaced broken or missing roof tiles with the same kind of curved Spanish tile still made by the same company that were used in the original construction. Wow. It is very nice. Uh, I would urge anyone to go. You can just kind of walk around the big portico where John Kennedy and all Gorgeous. the presidential candidates yeah. spoke and like look at the mosaics and the, the bows. What was it? <laughs> Bozar. Bozar. Yes. I would have pronounced it Bukes Arts. <laughs> Hooked on phonics. <laughs> uh, Ken, what's happening in your world? Speaking of buildings, we had a building dedication on campus recently to the recently retired chairman of the Yukon Board of Trustees, uh, Larry McHugh, after eight years, stepped down uh, as chairman of the board during a time during which we had a lot of things going on on this campus, construction, additional programs, new partnerships in science and in business. Uh, Mr. McHugh was a football coach and a high school teacher for a long time. He's been the president of the Middlesex County Chamber of Commerce uh, since 1983, but he's also been very passionate about higher education. He was with the uh, state university system uh, on the board there before he came over to UConn, and he's going to be missed because he's a guy that got things done on this campus. So uh, we were going to say farewell to, to Larry, but now there's a building. You can go to McHugh Hall for your classes. That's right. As for me, the, the news I have is huge congratulations to an alum, Richard Robinson, a 1979 CLAS graduate, was unanimously voted the Chief Justice of Connecticut's Supreme Court this week. This is the first time in the entire history of Connecticut that there will be an African-American Chief Justice. Wow. Justice Robinson graduated from the university in 1979, as I mentioned, got his law degree from West Virginia University, Montani Semper Liberi. That's the state <laughs> motto of West Virginia. And uh, he's been a uh, justice on the Supreme Court since 2013, and before that he was in the state appellate court. So 
That's great. Congratulations. And he's from Stanford, where we have a campus. That's right. He is from Stanford, where we have a campus. Yeah. UConn grads, getting it done. Mm-hmm. Making history. Speaking of getting it done, one thing that gets done too often is cybersecurity breaches. <laughs> <laughs> That might be my best segue. Best one yet. Uh, and we have a lot of expertise. We have a depth of expertise in cybersecurity here. And Ken Best is going to tell us about one UConn faculty member who has a lot of interesting things to say. Ken? Yeah, I spoke with uh, UConn political science professor uh, Evan Perkoski about a new study that he did with a colleague of his, Michael Posnanski, from the University of Pittsburgh uh, that was published in the Journal of Global Security Studies. It's the first time that a study has looked at whether nations or hacking groups take credit for their their cyber attacks. And the study is called Rethinking Secrecy in Cyberspace, the Politics of Voluntary Attribution. Hmm. Professor Prakoski is a specialist in political violence and terrorism. Uh, He's been studying that for a long time. And Professor Posnanski researches clandestine covert interventions among countries and why they might try to hide their actions. So there's going to be a discussion about state actors, which are countries, and non-state actors, which are terrorist groups or hackers. And the idea for doing this uh, began when they were both postdoctoral fellows at the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. We were there and we were tossing around a few ideas about the differences between how states and non-state actors behave in cyberspace, where you see non-state actors always claiming their attacks, always branding websites that they take down, taking hold of Twitter accounts and putting out their message. And on the other hand, you see states doing the exact opposite strategy, where states are really quiet and clandestine and covert. They don't want people to know about their cyber operations. And so our question was, why is this happening? Why are you seeing such different strategies? The claim of credit mm-hmm. can have consequences. How did you look at it from that perspective? Because throughout the paper, you, you lay out different arguments, but con- yep. come to some conclusions on that. So, so there are lots of ways that organizations, individuals, and states can claim credit. So it's not just a dichotomy, right? It's not just that you claim it or you don't, but we find that there's a whole gradation of claiming that's, that actors can uh, pursue from total denial We saw that throughout lots of clandestine interventions in the Cold War where the United States would say we neither um, confirm nor deny that we were involved in this intervention. And then you can move up slightly to only claiming to the person that you hacked. So maybe in the U.S. responded to the Russian meddling in the 2016 election, they might have responded and just let Russia know it was them, but not the broader public. And then you can move all the way up to how non-state actors often do it, which is very public, very clear credit claiming. But you can't often observe it, so it's a really difficult thing to study, that when states do it, it's often quiet, and we have no idea if it's actually happening. Well, let's also uh, discuss the two different types of cyber operations mm-hmm. that you you work on. One you s- describe as pretty much cyber crime, mm-hmm. and the other cyber blackmail, and they're two yep. distinct ways of doing this, and with two different agendas. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so in this paper, we kind of bracket both cyber crime and cyber blackmail because we think they're inherently different forms or types of cyber operations with different goals in mind. So typically with cyber crime, you're doing it for personal motivation, personal gain, financial gain usually. Because of that, we don't think it'll follow the same logic as states operating against other states in cyberspace. Sometimes you see states operating in cyberspace for financial gain, such as North Korea. North Korea has a really difficult time getting foreign currency because of all the embargoes and trade uh, restrictions on them. So they might use hacking operations to get some of that currency. 
But oftentimes when it is bad individuals trying to steal Bitcoin or whatever, that's a different logic, so we kind of bracket that. And the second one we also bracket is cyber blackmail, which is really what happened with North Korea, or what we think is North Korea, hacking Sony for releasing the movie about uh, Kim Jong-un. They hacked into Sony's servers, stole some sensitive information, and said, we want you to do X or else we'll release this information. Uh, it was a form of pretty basic blackmail. Now you also point out that the taking of credit for these uh, activities mm -hmm. is largely depending on what the so-called intruder wants to accomplish. Mm -hmm. now you touched on that a little bit, but if you could go a little bit detail as to what the differences might be based on the objective. So we break this down into objectives that both states and non-state actors might have. And by non-state actors, I mean terrorist groups, uh, cyber hacking units like Anonymous, like Syrian Electronic Jihad, like some of these organizations associated with the Russian state that are a little bit more independent. For states, we argue that they're likely to take credit for their cyber operations when it favors or helps us further their goals. And one of their goals might be to coerce an opponent. So if your goal is to coerce or change the behavior of an adversary, it might make sense to let them know you're doing it, you're going to keep attacking them if they fail to change their behavior in the future. For non-state actors, there's a slightly a different strategic logic at work where they are in a very different position from states. They're weaker, they don't have as many followers, as much financial resources as states. So for them, claiming credit can be a way to build up a reputation, to gain new followers, to get that message out there. In that sense, the logic of claiming by non-state actors is pretty similar to why terrorists take credit for their attacks. That when the Islamic State conducts an attack in Paris, or even another group, the Islamic State might try to take credit for it, because it builds international prestige, uh, maybe gets recruits more excited, and gets new followers uh, from Western Europe to join their organization. You point out that this is likely to be the very first study that looks at the constraints that are involved with mm -hmm. making these decisions. Uh, why would that be the case that this hasn't been looked at before? It's interesting. So we're kind of the first movers on this because cybersecurity is just a really new topic. It's very much reminiscent of studies of nuclear weapons during the early phases of the Cold War back in the early 1950s and even to the 1960s when we didn't know how to use these weapons, how they'd affect international uh, strategy, how they'd make uh, influence whether states can coerce an opponent and get Russia to do what the U.S. wants it to do. So in that sense, it's a very early or very young field. So that's one reason why no one has worked on this before. And the second reason is that lots of people just assume that you want to remain anonymous in cyberspace. And for a long time in this literature, people argued about the attribution problem. And the attribution problem is this idea that if you can't attribute cyber attacks, well, then you can't use them to do certain things that states often want to do. You can't use them to influence another state because if you don't know who's doing it and it doesn't have a return address, how does the other state know who to respond to or who to update their beliefs about? And so when Mike and I were looking or working on this paper, we kind of took a step back and said, you know what, the attribution problem doesn't always exist. That it exists mostly for states who don't take credit for their attacks. But for non-state actors, you often do see them claim their operations. And if you claim it, then an attribution problem doesn't exist. So it kind of was a product of faulty assumptions and just the, the early stages of this field, why no one had kind of looked at this question in depth. What direction do you see 
this the, the inquiry going uh, for others because the, you've now opened the door for others to pick up where you left off, which is the normal process yeah. in, in research, that you can raise questions that you might not be able to answer yourself, but others will then decide mm -hmm. to do. Uh, and then secondly, what's the result or the impact going to be now that people are starting to be aware of how this thing happened? I think one of the most important takeaways from this paper is that Applying this distinction between clandestine and covert operations to cyberspace has really opened the door for lots of new inquiry. That not all cyber, cyber operations are inherently anonymous and that actors can claim credit for them. And when you can claim credit, that opens the door to using cyber tools as almost traditional instruments of state power. For a long time we thought if you, they're always anonymous and you can't do certain things with them. But if you take that away, then we can start using them like traditional weapons, like cruise missiles and like atta bombing attacks and other um, kinetic operations against foreign states. So how they're going to be used in the future is a huge question that we don't totally know about yet. Another important question that we need to answer is how do groups and non-state actor groups in cyberspace operate, what keeps them together, and how do they form? Uh, we know a lot about how terrorists and insurgent groups come together and what sustains them, but we don't really have a theory of, of any of this stuff for uh, hacking organizations and whether they follow the same paradigms or not. So how do you defeat a militant organization or this sort of hacking uh, collective like Anonymous when they're all spread out throughout the world, they operate in some states that don't have extradition treaties with the United States, and they might even operate in some states that give them de facto immunity. So we know, for instance, that Russian hackers get not necessarily uh, support from the government, but they allow them to operate freely because they're operating within uh, their own interest. So that raises a lot of, of questions about how to understand these groups. Well, that was great. Thank you very much. Some serious stuff, and uh, it, it's not going away anytime soon, unfortunately. No. I'm terrible about my own personal cybersecurity. I'm that person that has the same password for everything. And, oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's rough. I'm not sure you have to worry about I don't think stuff. you have to worry about that <laughs> kind of stuff, but there are issues at play. Julie. <laughs> Completely unrelated. Yeah, I know. There's no good segue here. <laughs> you talked to a very interesting UConn student. Tell us uh, what you talked about. What I did. Um, Christy Kappel is a doctoral student in the NIAG School of Education, and she actually runs a blog for the Graduate Certificate in College Instruction, which is where she's a grad assistant. Um, and she really has some interesting perspectives and fresh takes on education today. So uh, you'll hear about it more in the piece, but I read one of her blog posts and thought she had a very interesting point of view. And this is just one example of the breadth of different minds we have creating knowledge here at this campus. So let's check it out. My name is Christy Keppel. I'm a second year PhD student in the Educational Leadership Department. And within that, my concentration is in adult learning. I'm also a graduate assistant here, um, and I work with the Graduate Certificate in College Instruction. The reason that I wanted to talk to you was because I saw your blog post called What Being a High School Dropout Taught Me About Teaching. Mm -hmm. so I found that really interesting, and I know you said you were a little apprehensive about sharing that information, but I think it's really cool that you did. So how did you go from being a high school dropout to now studying <laughs> education? <laughs> it's been a long winding path. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, it wasn't for a lack of love of learning, I think, as I share in the blog post that I dropped out of high school. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different factors that contributed to that decision. But basically, I just felt that I was not learning as much as I wanted to be and I didn't really find it useful anymore. So I'm a very highly intrinsically motivated person and have a hard time doing things if I'm not interested in them, if I don't see the relevance, which is something 
that I've carried over into into my teaching. And then there was just some personal things going on in my life too. So um, I left soon after I got my GED. So kind of full circle now because I teach GED classes. Mm -hmm. And then I went to community college. So I'm a big fan of community colleges because for me that's where I rediscovered that my love of learning could actually be within an institution. I took philosophy classes, sociology, psychology, just all these super interesting topics that weren't available to me in my high school curriculum. And then I was going to transfer to a four-year college, but my sister had been living in, in Spain at the time. And so I went and I taught English and ended up staying there for two years. Came back, went to Mount Holyoke College, um, got a good scholarship there, which I'm very thankful for. And then I took some time off after that and began teaching in adult basic education, which I still do part-time. And then I realized, okay, education, I think, is where I want to stay. And then through this whole process, kind of realizing that my unique experience, not always being successful in school, gave me a perspective that I think is needed, especially when you're working with non-traditional students. I haven't found that's uh, represented well. I mean, most people who get PhDs do not get their GED (laughs) as well. And then I did my master's in higher education. I wanted to work toward like inclusive education in higher ed. And then that was actually my first time in my master's program that I did an original research project. And I just fell in love with research. And I was like, why haven't I figured this out earlier? (laughs) So then I decided to do a PhD. So here I am. Yeah. So in your blog post, you talk about a couple of experiences you had in high school and what they taught you about what not to do, I guess, (laughs) when you're teaching someone who maybe is intrinsically motivated and isn't the typical student. So can you tell us a little about those? Yeah, sure. I always feel bad now thinking like, I hope none of those those <laughs> teachers see the blog posts. <laughs> but you know, to their credit too, as I've gotten older, I've realized that they're under a lot of pressure as well. So I don't put all the blame on them. There were two things. So one was that I, like I said, was pretty disengaged and didn't find a lot of value in most of the work I was doing. But we read Great Expectations in my sophomore year English class, and I got really into that book. And um, I decided to actually, you know, try and write a paper and do the assignment. I worked really hard on it. And then when I turned it in, the instructor after reading it said that I must have plagiarized because it was just too well written. (sighs) Yeah. And it was really discouraging because here was the first time that in a while that I was that was trying again excited about a a subject and I just feel that it's really important if you see that especially in a student that was disengaged to really nurture that and it just made me um want to leave and just not try again and so it, it didn't didn't work yeah that's totally understandable <laughs> someone says this can't be yours yeah <laughs> yeah and then another one was just um I think it was my senior year there was a two choices of books that we could read one of them was the bell jar by Sylvia Plath and that I really loved and I had already read and then another one was um Go Ask Alice, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. I think it was only like an eighth grade reading level. Um, Everybody kind of wanted the easier choice. And I was so, so the whole class got to vote. You know, perils of democracy, I guess. And, every, and we got to read that book, but I was really disappointed. And again, I think the lesson from that for me was is just trying to give a choice to students when they have it. Like not everybody had to read the same book. We could have done something a more creative where people read different books or did book groups or, you know, presented their book at the end of class. So those are things, the element of choice that I, I try to incorporate into my teaching. The idea of giving choice to students that so they can craft assignments to be their own and, and find things that they're intrinsically motivated in is, is 
is like a cornerstone of um, good pedagogy, I think, yeah. You sent me some information about a couple other projects you're working on. So one was about the role of critical thinking in higher ed. So as I've been thinking about how can people get a more transformative experience out of higher education that is actually going to open their mind and get them to become critical thinkers, I've been looking at some of the research on what instructional strategies work to foster critical thinking development. For me, I think critical thinking should be a tool that you use, hopefully to become less biased and have less of those problematic stereotypes and, and things of that nature. So I haven't been seeing a lot of literature directly related to that. And so I'm hoping that that'll, that'll probably be the direction that my dissertation goes in. I mean, you know, I'm really interested in that. what happens when someone decides they will change one of their firmly held beliefs. That's rare, but ideally college should be a time when you're experiencing a lot of different viewpoints and you're open to changing them or thinking of through your beliefs a little more deeply and then really deciding what you believe after having that experience with a lot of different beliefs. But if you don't get that, then I think you really miss out in college. And so it's like, how do we figure out like from programmatic stance or from curricular stance how to how to facilitate that for people. You're also working on support of women in higher education. I'm working on a paper right now with another graduate student at UConn, uh, Emma Bjorngard, who is just about to defend for her PhD. Good luck, Emma. Jealous. <laughs> and, and my advisor, um, Dr. Robin Grenier, um, in the adult learning department. And we are looking at the role that women's relationships and friendships play among um, women academics and helping them to navigate the landscape of academia, which can be sometimes male-dominated in some of its structures and tenure process and, and, and things like that. So uh, it started out just as a reflection between Emma and I that when we started hanging out, we met in a class that was not in either of our majors. We became much more confident. We were sort of collaborating together, brainstorming, validating each other's ideas, thinking of all these different ideas for conferences and studies. And it was really transformative what our friendship did for our sense of identity as scholars, you know, especially being in your first or second year as mm -hmm. I was, just unsure of any of my ideas are even <laughs> worth following through with. And so that led us to start wondering whether this was an experience that other women academics have, have had as well. We wanted to look at women's friendships in academia, but there isn't a lot on friendship, which itself seems to be maybe a reflection of some values and what's what's valued in, in mm -hmm. higher education. And you know, maybe friendship sounds a little too feminine or maybe a little too touchy-feely for some people. What we've been finding so far is that the peer mentoring among people who are, are at similar levels seems to be really helpful in identity development, um, confidence, self-efficacy, and also their productivity as, as researchers. So I think there's a lot of cool implications there. Um, and I, you know, the question is, how do you facilitate relationships? Like, right. Because some of the traditional mentoring doesn't work out. And some of the studies actually show that the traditional mentoring left them feeling actually more full of self-doubt because huh. you're paired up with somebody so much higher up than you and you're just in this right. position of being like, inferior and so not that that's a bad thing I think you can get a lot of good information from from senior mentors but I think having a place with peers is really important too but from again from a programmatic stance like how do you facilitate organic relationships right it's really interesting and there's a lot of talk out there about women supporting other women not tearing other women down mm -hmm. so yeah we really wanted to sort of turn that narrative around that probably is a result of some conditions where women are sort of pitted against each other because it's so competitive. And I think for Em and I, because we were in different departments, mm -hmm. it allowed us to not have that element of competition in our friendship. And, you know, we really believe in women supporting each other and lifting each other up and not feeling like someone else's success is your downfall. Right, you know? right. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for this having me. This is awesome.
That was awesome, Julie. Well, thank you. Yeah, she's very cool. You know, uh, it's time once again to visit our favorite place, uh, Tom's History Corner, which will be renamed. It will. I'm just too busy, Tom. Leave this me alone. This is like uh, the sixth time we've been promised. No. There's a lot of paperwork. Oh, a lot of, of red course, tape. Of course. There's got to be paperwork involved. Uh, you know, Do you have any ideas, guys? Yes, if you have any ideas, at us on Twitter, Yukon Podcast. How about tearing the paperwork up? Just <laughs> tear the paper. It's anarchy. As I stroll the lanes and avenues of Yukon days gone by, uh, one thing really stands out to me, that there used to be a lot more in the way of campus traditions than oh. there are today. Did you, Julie, did you participate in any campus traditions when you were a student? I did. I watched Oozball. I did not play Oozball because I don't like mud. Mm. Um, I, wa- I waited for ice cream with one ton Sunday okay. in very, very cold weather and came late to my history class after. Um, what else did I do? First night. With for the basketball team, um, basketball teams, I should say. Yeah, there were quite a few going on. But did you ever dress up in costume and throw someone <laughs> in Mirror Lake? <laughs> I can't say I did that. Well, is that something you're trying to resurrect? Yeah. Well, okay. So I'll get into it. I, I was uh, as I've been, you know, going through different sources, uh, old yearbooks, old newspapers, things like that. I have seen the yearbooks piled on your desk yeah. as I walk by. A lot of things jump out at me, and so I wanted to give a brief, uh, by no means inclusive list of some of my favorite traditions that are vanished and maybe could come back. <laughs> if anyone's out there listening, any listen up, kids. Listen up. Uh, the first one I wanted to highlight is secret societies. Ooh, Ken likes those. You know how Yale uh, has like uh, those quote-unquote secrets? Yeah, skull and bones and yeah. scroll and key and seals and crofts and all those. <laughs> I might seals be, and crofts. I might be wrong about that one. <laughs> you know, uh, 1970s folk right yeah, well. <laughs> Or secret society at Yale. You be the judge. Uh, well, UConn had one of those too, but we had a much better name. Uh, they were called the Druids. This harkens back, harks back to your... Druid ceremony. Yeah, it does, right? We've got kind of a Druid theme going. Uh, The Druids were an all-male secret society, except for one woman in 1940. There was only one woman in the history of the Druids. Uh, They were an all-male secret society that existed for over three decades. It's not really clear what they did because they were a secret society. They would never know. Although at the same time, they always always had yearbook entries in which they were named. That's not very secretive. So I think it was kind of like they were graduating and they were like, oh, by the way, the Druids were these guys. Anyway, they tended to be uh, leading lights of the student body. Like the daily campus editor was typically a druid, and the student government president was typically so a druid. So it's like the Illuminati on a UConn scale. It was scale. kind of like the Illuminati <laughs> on the UConn I'm not scale. sure we should go there. Uh, in the, in the, uh, during fall 1951, um, the party came to an end for the druids because the student senate demanded that the current members of the druids reveal themselves because I guess they didn't want to wait for the yearbook. So the Druids did. They, they publicly outed themselves, and they went on to form a not-so-secret society called the Archons, which uh, lasted until the 1970s. But they were more of like a service group. Is that what they were doing secretly? They were secret? So nobody knows what the Druids were doing. Or did they just misspell acorn? <laughs> they, uh, they didn't leave behind that we know. They didn't leave any paperwork or meeting minutes or things like that. So we're not really sure what they... They controlled the campus is what they did. Mm. The next uh, tradition I liked was the Triple C, the CCC. Starting in 1948, the Community Chest Carnival, which later became the Campus Community Carnival, uh, was a rapidly growing annual event that brought together the charitable impulses of the student body with their desire to build floats while drunk. (laughs) Uh, It started with a few carnival-style games and booths to raise money for local charities, but it grew to include uh, a WHUS marathon, a parade, games, races, you name it. Clowns? There were clowns. There were clown contests. Oh. 
And the whole thing extended from one weekend to an entire week. The Triple C lasted an entire week. And during it, uh, WHUS would play a song, a really annoying song, apparently. I've never heard it, called the Gong Gong Song. And the only way they would stop playing is if you called the pledge. Sounds like Homecoming, though. Sounds like that may have evolved a little. This was sort of a... Uh, homecoming was in the fall. This was in the spring. Oh, okay. okay. And it was, apparently it was a bigger deal than Homecoming. By 1960, it was the third largest college carnival in the entire United States hmm. and the largest on the East Coast. Uh, raised money, uh, tens of thousands of dollars every year for charity. Um, and it gave students the chance to compete with each other to uh, make the most elaborate floats. Each residence hall would build their own. And when did it end? Tradition petered out in the 1970s, uh, and by the 1980s, its successor as an annual revel was Spring Weekend, which is inexplicably fondly remembered by people like me who apparently see fewer activities more rewarding than standing around in a cold drizzle drinking watery beer out of plastic cups. With cops. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) And when did Husky... Start. Husky Thon started in 2000. So Husky Thon is the successor in terms of raising right, money. Right, lots of money for charity, which is great. The dance marathon. Um, and then the, the sort of the last thing I wanted to highlight was freshman traditions. So we have the week of welcome now, and, and it, you know, there's stuff. Very institutional. Yeah. But in the uh, ye olden days, uh, being a, a first-year student was kind of intense. You had to wear a blue and white beanie. <laughs> um, there was a tug of war across Swan Lake. Yes. That ended about the beginning of the 70s. Yes, the beanie. We, we had that when I was a freshman. Oh, let's when. find a picture we, of Ken we, in we, a beanie. No, we ended it that year. <laughs> <laughs> the beanies were a thing. Uh, the, for some reason, the sophomore class hated the freshman class and was constantly trying to destroy them. Wow. Um, the, uh, the hazing, actually, between the sophomores and freshmen got so bad that in 1925, President Charles Beach of Beach Hall fame uh, he banned all hazing because a freshman was paddled so severely he suffered a major spinal injury. Eee. Yep. But the weirdness wasn't over. It didn't end there. <laughs> in 1932, uh, the first Pied Piper Parade was held, uh, starting a tradition that would last over 40 years. Uh, early in the fall semester, the president of the student government, dressed as the Pied Piper of Hamlin, would lead the marching band around campus. All the freshman students would have to come outside in their pajamas uh, and follow the Pied Piper to Mirror Lake. Aww. There, they would take an oath by candlelight. Uh, they would hold mock elections for the mayor of stores. Uh, and at the conclusion of it, starting in the 1950s, the Pied Piper himself was seized by members of the freshman class and thrown into Mirror Lake. Oh, I'm so glad this was gone Did by the time Did he actually play I... a piper? pipe? He didn't know. It's, uh, pictures of the day, he's, he's dressed in a garish uh, costume, and he has kind of like a, the, the thing that the drum majors have to lead that I'm sure mm-hmm. it has a name. Thank you, Baton. <laughs> Bozars. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, it may have another name. I it might. Just call it, 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 could. it could. If you know, add us on Twitter. Um, <laughs> well, we'll have to check with the marching band. <laughs> and for years, there was actually a group of uh, three students uh, who were charged with ensuring that freshmen observed these and other traditions. They had the splendidly sinister name, the Black Triumvirate. Oh, my God. Uh, the last Pied Piper Parade was held in 1972, which is right around the time a lot of these traditions died because um, of, I don't know. Hippies. Hippies. Thanks for nothing, hippies. Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> well, we I love hippies. I would have been a hippie. We certainly hope the tradition of listening to Yukon 360 does not die. Aww. That becomes a lasting tradition. And you are listening, subscribing, rating, and telling strangers in line at the grocery store all about us. You can follow us on Twitter, at Yukon Podcast. Find us on most of your favorite podcasting applications. Uh, and before we take our leave this week, Julie, tell the people how they can track you down, what they should know. I am at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Um, 
working on some stories about professors and things because all of the students are gone now. Yes, Ken, and I know you have some news about where people can find you this summer. You can find me at 91.7. Yes. W-H-U-S. finally. Mondays from 4.30 to 6 p.m. And streaming online at whus.org. If you want to hear more of Ken's voice and what type of of music, Ken? Not so much my voice, music. Rock and roll, spanning the decades? Lots of stuff. The show is called Good Music because Duke Ellington said there's two kinds of music. Good music and the other kind. (laughs) Where does the Gong Gong song fit in? Uh, well, we can, f- we can probably find a way. So if I will try to find the Gong Gong song. And if I do, we will play it on the podcast. Gotta be on YouTube. And I might put it on the radio show. That would be <laughs> never know. And have people call and pledge money to get you to stop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or the two of you will have to come up or, and, we, and we can figure or, that out. Or we'll have to pay you to get you to stop. I don't know. Some, somehow money's going to change hands here. Uh, okay, you can find me on Twitter at TJ Breen, where I have been posting lots of old Yukon photos lately. So if you're interested in that, you can find them there. Uh, perhaps someday I'll post a photo of the Black Triumvirate because I have a hilarious yearbook photo Do of them. Do it. They all, their t- each individual title was Chancellor. Ooh. It's really weird. We don't have that anymore. Like, who thinks of these things? Well, Chancellor was sort of provost on some campuses. Yeah, but these were students. <laughs> well, who made sure that people who were. had to go throw other students in the lake. I know, and who made sure you were wearing beanies. Those are the days. <laughs> Miserable. Uh, all right. Well, until next time, uh, keep your beanies tight, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.